Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. But this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he was thrown in to the lake of fire. Father, we come to you this morning and God, we first of all want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us life. Thank you that these things that we're reading about, we have no fear of because God, you have already rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your son and into the kingdom of light. But God, we need understanding, Father, and we need a reminder, I think, this morning of how important it is that we live our lives for things that last. Because as this passage tells us, everything will be burned up except for what's done for you, your glory, your word, and the souls of men and women. And so, Father, we surrender ourselves this morning and pray that you would give us understanding in this brief time that we have of this passage. And Holy Spirit, once again, I just call out to you and I... I don't want to do this alone. I can't. I need you to be able to speak your word with clarity and with boldness to your people that you love so deeply. We pray that our hearts would be stirred to follow you more closely as a result of our time this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to have to um, abbreviate some of my comments this morning because of time. But I want to begin by talking about the millennial reign briefly. 
The millennium, it's a word, it's a Latin word uh, that's a compound word, mill for a thousand and annus for years, millennium meaning a thousand years. It's the thousand year period that uh, will mark a tremendous transition from the punishment and the judgments of God when the false prophet and the beast will be thrown into the lake of fire and at that point an angel as we read in this passage will come with the keys to the abyss and Satan will be locked away for a period of a thousand years this millennium reign of Christ and we're going to talk about this, that this morning, but I want to talk about three different views on this millennial reign of Christ. As we were talking about before, I was just mentioning to somebody about, we were commenting on the topic of uh, the message today, and, and people were talking about how, wow, churches split over this kind of thing. And they have, over the end times perspectives. And so I want to give you the three possibilities of when this period will take place, or if it will take place. I'm going to tell you what my perspective on it is. I don't think it's going to be a big surprise to you. Uh, but, uh, but I do want to say that there are godly men and women who differ on the timing of the millennial reign of Christ. And uh, so I will share those different perspectives and then I'll share what I believe uh, my understanding of the millennial reign is and then we'll take it from there. And hopefully by the time we finish, uh, there'll be a hunger in your heart to make your life count because the time is short. Now, the first question is when we're talking about this thousand year period, is it literal? Is it actually, Satan actually going to be locked away? Are these events actually going to unfold? Will it be an, a literal 1,000 years? Is Christ literally going to come down to earth? Will he establish a literal kingdom? Will he take up literal thrones? Will there be a literal judgment? Is there a literal hell? Is there a literal lake of fire? Or is all of this symbolic? And that's the question. The, the first view is a pre-millennial view. The prefix pre only means that Christ is going to come at the beginning of the millennial reign. So before the millennial reign begins, Christ will come. So it's pre. The prefix pre indicates his coming early. It teaches that Christ's return is personal and visible and that uh, it's, as it's described in Revelation 19, that it's followed by a literal binding of Satan in Hades and a literal thousand year reign of Christ by the resurrected saints on the earth. This was the perspective and the position that was held by the church for the first three, four hundred years of the church. It's still held, but that was, it was held exclusively. The early church didn't believe anything else except the pre-millennial position. The second possibility is amillennialism. Uh, whenever you have the, the A in front of a word in, uh, in Greek or in Latin, it means it's a negation of whatever it is. So like when you talk about musing, musing means thinking. And if you, if you want to stop thinking, you are amused. Okay, so that's what we do. That's why we call it vegging when we watch TV is because we're not thinking anymore. We're just, you know, we've got that kind of, you know, deer in the headlights look as we watch TV. But it's ah amused. It means that we're not thinking. Now, it's the same thing with uh, when it comes to um, ah millennialism. It means that there, there's no they're not there's not a millennial reign in a literal sense at all. It's purely symbolic. Um, during that period, it's, it's actually equated with the church age. So in other words, all the way from the time of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross until the second coming of Christ, that's the millennial reign. In other words, we are in the millennial reign right now if you are an amillennialist. And what that means is that we believe that we are reigning with Christ and that, uh, you know, this is it. This is the kingdom. You're, you're seeing it. And um, 
Boy, I hope it's sure better than that. I've got to say, I hope, I hope it's not that position, but that is the position. Uh, this was actually a view held by Origen and Augustine in the 3rd and 4th centuries. That's when this, uh, the amillennial position uh, was, um, was generated. The third possibility is post-millennialism. The prefix post referring to Christ coming after the millennial reign of Christ. This is called the optimistic view. And the reason is, is that there's the belief with a post-millennialist is that, that because of the preaching of the gospel that the kingdom of God, the power of the church is going to overwhelm the world and that we are going to be taking up positions of political leadership and, and leadership in our culture on every level and the whole world is going to be Christianized. And that when we're done and the whole world knows Jesus, that we're going to hand it over to him and say, here, it's finished. How did we do? That's the post-millennial view. Not very many people believe that view. It was actually originated in the writings of a Unitarian uh, by the name of Daniel Whitby in the 1700s. It became popular in the 19th century and the 20th century and it, it waned during World War I and World War II because, of course, it's like things aren't getting better. Things are getting worse. And the whole perspective of the post-tribulation view, my mic not working again? Thank you for letting me know. Okay. How am I doing now? There we go. No wonder I was having to kind of yell. Okay. Anyway, the, the post-millennial view is very optimistic and, uh, and I don't think uh, is, is ex uh, personally a realistic uh, position uh, because uh, as we know, as there's so many scriptures that teach in the end things are going to get worse. People's love for Christ is going to grow cold. It's not going to get fervent. It's going to become more difficult to be a Christian, not easier. And so, but those are the three perspectives. And I, I think you already know because of my teaching in Revelation, my perspective is that I, I'm a premillennialist. I believe that Christ is going to come uh, before, the beginning of the trip, uh, before the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. I think all of it's literal. I think that if the Bible is not literal, if you can't take it for what it says, then, then what can you understand of any of it? But the Bible is given by God to communicate to us so we can understand it. But in the other two positions... You have to take it symbolically, which means the whole book of Revelation becomes symbolic and that's why there are so many teachings that are confusing in the body of Christ in the book of Revelation. One of the, one of the biggest blessings I've had in going through this book is to have people come up to me and say, I've never understood Revelation until this series. And it's so simple and uncomplicated. Certainly there's some parts that are still a little bit foggy because God hasn't shown us everything. But I'm thinking to myself, well, that's the way the Word of God should be. It shouldn't be convoluted and difficult to understand. And, uh, and so I believe that the simplest approach is to just take God's Word as it is written for what it says. And we've done that all the way through the book of Revelation and have found no difficulty in you know, understanding the book. And so chapter 20, I believe, is to be taken in the same manner. That it's a literal kingdom ruled by God through Christ and that we are going to be a part of it. Now, John begins by describing what he sees and we see him saying this four times in this chapter that he sees something. He, so he's, he's unveiling and revealing what he sees regarding this revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And so we find this angel, he, this angel isn't even named. Now, there's, it's, we can speculate. I believe it's probably the Archangel Michael, the adversary of Satan. And we'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. But the interesting thing is, is that he has keys. Now, where did he get those keys? 
Well, he got them from Jesus Christ. Because we know in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 18, is that Jesus Christ holds the keys of death and Hades. And it's not the first time that Jesus has kind of loaned his keys out. He loaned his keys out in Revelation 9.1 to another angel when he unlocked Hades and let all of those demonic hordes come out of the pit. Do you remember when we were talking about that? The locusts and the, the horsemen. And so, um, but this is the second time when an angel has been given the privilege of taking these keys for Christ's purposes. And uh, we find him having these keys to the abyss, uh, the abuso. It means the bottomless pit. It's not hell. Uh, some people believe that it's the center of the earth because it's bottomless. In other words, no matter where you are in the center of the earth, everywhere is up. So there is no bottom. Uh, but again, that's uh, speculation. No one really knows. But this angel has got a chain. He's got the keys and he's got a chain and he's going to bind Satan. And I'm thinking, what in the world do you bind Satan with? Is it a literal chain? Well, I think it is. But maybe not made of the material that we would think of. You know, some steel or alloy of some sort. I don't know. But I do know that Jude 1.6 says that the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home in heaven, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. The important part is that he's chained. And God has the power to do it. And you know what blows my mind? Is that God the Father isn't binding him. Jesus Christ doesn't have to lift a finger. We've got an unnamed angel that can take care of Satan. He is a liar and a deceiver. He has been trying to get us to think that he's got all this power and he can wrap us around his finger and that we, could, we have to be frightened of him. Nothing could be further from the truth for the believer. We have nothing to fear ever from Satan because Jesus Christ is greater than Satan will ever hope to be. And even his, his angels, his ambassadors, have the power to bind Satan himself. And so this angel seizes the dragon in verse 2. That ancient serpent, the devil, or Satan, and he binds him for a thousand years. Verse 3 tells us that he was thrown into the abyss and locked and sealed to keep him from deceiving the nation. So this is the purpose that God has in in binding Satan for this period of time. We'll talk in a minute about why. Why the thousand years? Have you ever, if you know prophecy very much, this is a big question. It's like, okay, we've got them, we've got Satan bound for a thousand years. Why? Why doesn't God just finish everything off? Why do we have this interim period? And we'll, I'm going to give you the answer, my perspective on that, in just a couple of minutes. But the, the, uh, the, the bottom line is, is that Satan is thrown into this temporary place of incarceration and he's imprisoned for the purpose of preventing him from deceiving the nations any longer until the thousand year period is ended. And then at the end of verse 3, we find that after that, he must be set free for a short time. Now John, in verse 4, says that he sees something else taking place. He says he sees thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Now, I believe that this group is none other than the saints. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those who have given themselves in a living, loving relationship with Jesus Christ, those who have uh, been raptured at the time of the church, they've been resurrected, and they are going to be assigned dominion and authority and thrones 
Jesus promised this. Uh, there are many scriptures on this, and I, I've listed uh, one of them there for you, but there are many others, and I unfortunately don't have time to share them all with you, but I will share one in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus, speaking to the church, gives a promise to those who overcome. To those who overcome and do my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. So Jesus himself is promising to the church this great authority and this opportunity to judge the nations. And now we are seeing the culmination and the, the, uh, the fulfillment of that promise and that prophecy. Now the real question is, who are they judging? Who's on earth? Well, again, we don't have a complete picture here. One thing that we do know is that we know that the world has been devastated by judgment. There's almost nothing left. We know that God has already overcome the enemies of darkness. We know that the beast and the false prophet and their hordes that came against Christ have been destroyed. Just the word of his mouth took them all out. We know that those who believed in Jesus Christ during that tribulation period will, will more than likely, the majority of them will be martyred for Christ because of the word of their testimony and their willingness to hold on to the word of God no matter what. There will be those, I believe, who will actually survive that tribulation period. We know that the prophecies in, in uh, the Old Testament talk about fleeing into the mountains. There will be those that I believe that we talked about previously will actually go to the city of Petra, the rock city of Petra in Jordan, and they will find refuge there and they will be protected by God for a period of time until the final end of the kingdom of the enemy. And they will actually physically survive. They will be alive on the earth. The Bible teaches that this millennial reign will last, of course, obviously for a thousand years. During that thousand year period, there won't be much death, if any death at all. People will live, in fact, the prophecies say that if, if, a, if someone dies at a hundred years old, they'll be considered but, a, but an infant, a babe. People will have the capacity to to procreate. God is going to bless the earth again and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But God is going to bless the earth again. It's going to be, a it's going to be really going back to the Garden of Eden again. There won't be any disease or famine or drought, no pestilence, no pollution, no sin. It's going to be perfect. And because of that, the earth will be rapidly repopulated by the tribulation saints' offspring. People can have like, you know, three or four hundred kids in a thousand years. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not going to be there. I really am. But it's possible for people to just have kids and more kids and more kids. There, there won't be any lack for provision. The world is going to be just a perfect garden. It's going to be a beautiful place. And so the, the, the possibility of having people raise, you know, just, you know, literally hundreds, scores of children is very possible. And so it's possible that in that thousand years the earth will have a population that is even greater than it is today. Those will be the people that these saints, that you, and as we'll talk about in just a moment, the martyred believers will be able to rule over with Christ. Now John also talks about uh, seeing souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony. Of course, these are the martyrs during the tribulation period. They were martyred for their testimony of Christ and because of the word of God. These people would not let go. They would not bend the knee. They would not bow 
to Satan. Oh man, if we could be people like this now when it's so easy, how God could use us. How powerful it would be if men and women like ourselves, when the pressure isn't even on, could stand that firmly and that solidly for Christ. God wants you to be a man like that. He wants you to be a woman like that, a young person like that. These are easy times to be a Christian. It will become much more difficult. I encourage you to make your decision now to be a man or woman who will go to the very end if necessary, even to the point of sacrificing your life rather than forsake your testimony or forsake the truth of the Word of God. We're also told that they didn't worship the beast or his image. They didn't receive the mark on their foreheads or their hands. And these people actually came to life. So it's, it's, we're not talking about their souls somehow all of a sudden being on the scene. But these people physically were resurrected. And they reigned with Christ for the duration of this thousand year millennial reign of Christ. Now we're told in a parenthetical way that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So, and we're going to notice in a, in a moment that there's another resurrection. We've got two resurrections that take place in the scripture. The first resurrection, as pointed out here, is the martyred saints who come to life. Now, I don't believe that they are alone in this reigning and ruling with Christ. I believe that they are the final phase of this first period of resurrection. Who was the first person to be resurrected? Jesus Christ. He is called the first fruits. And there is much to follow. What else happened on the day that Jesus was resurrected? Does anybody remember what happened? Some bizarre things happened on that day. The tombs were open and these dead people were wandering around. They're a part of that first resurrection. Now I believe those people died again. But they were resurrected to demonstrate the power of God. The next resurrection of sorts came through the rapture of the church where the church was just taken up into heaven with God. Another resurrection was the two witnesses. You remember they were killed during that three and a half year period of tribulation. And they were slain and laid out on the streets for three days. And everybody thought, man, they're in history. Their bodies were rotting. And God breathed life into them again. And they were resurrected and caught up into the heavens. And then we have this resurrection of the tribulation martyrs. But we're told that the rest of the dead... Who are the rest of the dead? Everybody that's, that's saved has been resurrected. Who are the rest? It's the unbelievers. It's those that have not put their trust in Christ. They will not be resurrected until the end of the thousand year period and we'll read about that in just a moment. So there are two resurrections. The first resurrection is at the beginning of the tribulation. I mean, at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. And the second resurrection is going to take place at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Now we're told in in verse 6 that blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. Well, that's not hard to figure out why. We're, we're, we're blessed. God has blessed us. You are a blessed people. You, I, the, the word blessed means, oh, how happy. Why are we happy? Why are we glad? I mean, your song today, Johnny, was so good. I felt like he preached a sermon right in a song. But we are blessed because we won't be going through any of those things. The Bible says that we are delivered from that judgment. You are blessed. I don't care what's happening in your life. I mean, I, it's not that I don't care, but you know what I mean. It's that everything here is so small and minor compared to what God has waiting for you. 
and what God wants to do in you and through you right now here on earth. Don't be distracted. God has a plan for you and He wants to use you for His glory. Be a part of it. But these people who are a part of this first resurrection are blessed and holy. It means they're set apart. So when you're set apart for God and, you're, and you experience that, that being set apart for Him only through His death and resurrection and you receive that gift of eternal life, you are no longer a partner in this world in the enemy's camp. You are now belonging to Jesus Christ. You are a part of a new family forever. And you are blessed. And you are set apart by God. And it's cause for rejoicing. These people are going to be resurrected, which in the Greek is the word anastasis. It means to stand again. So these people are standing again physically. People who were once dead. The word resurrection is mentioned 40 times in the, New, in the New Testament and it always refers to a bodily, physical resurrection. Now we're told that those who are part of this first resurrection, the second death has no power over them at all. The Bible says that there are two births. The first birth is a physical birth. Most of us here have experienced that. But the Bible also says there is a second birth. But not everyone experiences that. Remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus at night and he says, you must be born again. You must be born again if you want to experience the kingdom of God. So there's the first birth, the physical birth, and then you've got the second birth, the spiritual birth. That's where a man or a woman confesses to Jesus Christ, I am a sinner, I need your grace, I want your life. Forgive me of what I've done. Forgive me for my rebellion. And I come to you humbly and I say, give me your life in exchange for this filthy life of mine. I want to live for you. When that happens, that's the second birth. Now the amazing thing is, is that if you're born once, the scripture says that you will die twice. If you only are born once, not born again, never received a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will die twice. Once physically, and then the second time by eternal separation and torment away from God. That's the second death. Do you think God wants that for anybody? No. He doesn't want it for you, and He doesn't want it for anyone in the world. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. But the hardness of heart is an amazing thing. It will cause a man or a woman to even be willing in their rebellion and in their self-centeredness and in their rejection of the gift of the Messiah to say, bring it on. I don't believe it anyway and even if I did, so what? Hell is where I belong. I've actually met people that talk like that. All my friends are in hell. That's where I'm going. You know, you've heard that. That's, that's, I think that's going to be a cool place. You can do whatever you want and... Um, Unfortunately, there's a, a, a lack of understanding about how terrible hell is. So, but the second death won't have power over those that belong to Him. And I, I want to tell you something that I find to be an amazing blessing. I, I have absolutely no fear of death. I don't do foolish things, well, not all the time anyway, that would invite death. But I have no fear of it and I actually am looking forward to it. 
because that will be my transition. That will be my graduation. That will be my entrance into the kingdom of God where I am living. I am living there now. And so is every person who calls on the name of Christ and loves Jesus with all their heart. The Bible says there were aliens and strangers here. That our kingdom and our citizenship is not here but in heaven. And this is a temporary ambassadorship position that we have to fulfill God's purposes. But our true home is in the heavens. And one day, not long from now, it's going to happen. Maybe some of you this next week will make your transition. Maybe for some of you it will be a year or five years or 50 years. But it's coming and it's something to rejoice in and it's something to look forward to because it will be the freedom for the believer like freedom you've never known and never even comprehended before that's awaiting us as we come to that first death and avoid the second death. The Bible says that these people, the believers, that the second death has no power of over them and they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Can you believe it? I mean, I, I scratch my head often amazed at the high position that Jesus Christ is willing to give people like us. I wouldn't give me very much at all. I might make me in charge of flipping burgers in heaven. Maybe. And that would take a lot of training for me. I, I'm not sure I would give people the right to rule and reign in my kingdom if I were God. But God doesn't seem to have a problem with it all. In fact, he rejoices in it and he's looking forward to it. And the Bible says in an amazing way that even now in this time, he has raised us up to be a kingdom of priests for our God who intercede on the behalf of this world before God and link one hand with unbelievers and one hand with God and bring them together that they might know Jesus Christ and be set free. And so he has given us an awfully high standing. Now we're told in verse 7 that at the end of this thousand year period, by the way, that will, these are the verses where we find the animal kingdom is tamed, you know, where the wolf and the lamb lay down together and the child has his hand in the cobra's nest and the cobra doesn't bite. This is the millennial reign that Jesus is talking about. It's a place of unprecedented peace the environment will be lush. There's perpetual health. If you're interested, I can share these scriptures with you later, but many of them are from the book of Isaiah. People will have extremely long lives. There will be no intellectual doubt about the existence of God, the deity of Christ or his power. But salvation, even during that millennial time, will require a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now in verse 7, we find that at the end of that thousand year period, Satan will be released from his prison once again and will go out and deceive the nations and he's going to bring them all together to make war. One final effort, one final push by the enemy to accomplish his purpose, to bring God down. And of course, in the process, God will bring him down. Now the question is, why would God release Satan? Why would God go to all the trouble? Why would he create a garden-like setting again of the earth, why would he allow Satan to be bound? Why would he let him out again? Why go through the thousand years? What's the point? What's the point? Well, I'm going to give you my perspective. 
And I believe that's grounded in Scripture, but at the same time I have to say that Revelation doesn't tell us why. So I have to say this is my opinion. It's somewhat speculative, but I think it's in keeping with the rest of Scripture. I think one of the first reasons that God allows this thousand-year period for Satan to be taken out and then to be brought back into the scene to allow him to come back is to test the faithfulness of the people born during the millennium period. We find this happening often in Scripture. I, uh, too many to mention, but I'll mention one in uh, Judges chapter 2. Do you remember, if you know the book of Judges very well, there's seven cycles of sin in the people of Israel. And they get close, you know, God basically sends uh, disaster among them because they forsake God. They're worshiping other idols, other gods. And God sends armies, invading armies, to take them over. And the people are just devastated. And they begin to cry out to God for mercy. God hears their cry, sends a deliverer. The deliverer delivers them. The people are free again. They worship God. But over a period of time, they get settled in again. And they kind of start to stray. Listen to what Judges chapter 2 says. And he's referring to the enemies of Israel. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. Statistically, if you're a believer, a first generation believer in your family, the chances are good that two to three generations down the line, your kids won't even walk with the Lord. Statistics doesn't mean it's going to be true for your family. Whenever God does a work on the earth and there's a great movement of God, many of the denominations have been through this. Great move of God in many denominations, but, you know, a hundred years pass, several generations, and what happens? The denomination ends up being totally liberal, doesn't even believe the Word of God, doesn't believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, doesn't believe in the virgin birth, doesn't believe in salvation by faith alone, doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. How can that happen? Time, compromise, hypocrisy. There are going to be literally hundreds of generations during this thousand year period. And God, possibly, is going to allow Satan to come out to test the hearts of those who are living during that period of time to see what's really in their hearts, whether they will follow God. The second possibility is to demonstrate that man is the problem. It's not Satan. It's not the environment. It's our sinful heart. There is a lie in our culture that's accepted by virtually everyone that if you give man the right environment and the right education and the right opportunities that he'll be good. That he'll do good. Well, it's a lie. This is probably one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible to refute that lie. Because man is given perfect conditions for this millennium. And a perfect leader, perfectly just. There will be no sin in terms of nothing unpunished. There will be no injustice. Everything will be taken care of immediately because the saints will be judging and Christ will be judging. And everything will be right. There will be no wickedness in the world that's tolerated. Perfect conditions. The environment's perfect. There's no pollution. Heredity, it's going to be perfect. Everybody's bodies will be perfect. Perfect conditions, perfect leadership. And yet we find at the end of this thousand years, what happens? They all, at the first suggestion of Satan to go against God, say, Yeah! We don't like being under his rulership anymore. Yeah, the conditions are perfect, but they've been, you know, they've been perfect for so long that everybody forgets what it's like to 
live in imperfect conditions. And so I believe that it will be a demonstration once and for all that the problem is not our environment or our heredity or, you know, our parents or bad influence, but we are the problem. It's sin nature in us. The Bible tells us it's the case, but we just don't believe it. We want to believe that there's something good in us. But the Bible teaches otherwise, which is why he wants to give every man and every woman a new nature and a new beginning. I think a third reason is that he wants to demonstrate the incurable wickedness of Satan. Even after a thousand years of incarceration and classwork and homework and counseling, Satan is not reformed. He comes out just as wicked as ever, just as bad as ever. And I think it's the final blow. I think it's God saying, there is no hope even for Satan. And so his judgment against him will be just. And so Satan will go out and he will gather the nations for battle, but he will be defeated. The Bible tells us in verse 9 that though they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, Jerusalem, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. I mean, you know, this is not even a contest. It goes back to the the Battle of Armageddon. We have a number of battles mentioned to us in the book of Revelation. But they're not even battles. It's like, okay, God's camp is there. The enemy army shows up. They're gone. You know, the word of the Lord goes out and they're just, poof, it's history. There's not a sword raised. There's not a gun fired. It's over. Now we have another battle. They surround the camp of Israel. People hate Israel. And they'll hate Israel to the end. And you watch. It's going to get worse. The vehemence against the nation of Israel will increase significantly in the years ahead. But these nations will gather. Those who have experienced the perfect environment of God, the blessing of God, the riches of God, the rulership of God, the love of God, the faithfulness of God, will turn their back against their Creator. And they will gather against Him. And it won't be a battle. In an instant, fire will come from heaven very much like Sodom Sodom and Gomorrah and just... Everyone will be history. The Bible says that the devil who deceived them will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. He's going to be joining two people who are already there. They've already been there for a thousand years. By the way, some people believe that hell is annihilation. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the beast and the false prophet have already been there a thousand years. And now, the devil or Satan joins them. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. That's their destiny. Thank goodness it's not God's plan for His people. Now, I'm going to go through quickly the last part of this passage. John sees a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And John saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. I'm going to not even use my notes too much here because I've got to pull this all together quickly. At the end of this time, the dead and small, the great and the, the least in the world will all be gathered before God. 
and they will stand before God. This word stand, it has to do with judgment. We've already got God's sentence on the people. He's already convicted them. They've already been told you're guilty for rejecting Christ. Remember, these great and small who are gathered before God are the second resurrection. They are those who rejected Christ and now have to stand before God and be judged. They've been judged guilty and now they are standing before God for the penalty phase of this judgment. They are going to be told what their punishment is and it's going to be based on their works. And so they're standing before God. It doesn't matter what their position was. Everyone from the time of Cain to the final revolt in the millennium will be standing before God for this judgment which is what Scripture teaches in Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. Every man, there is no reincarnation scripturally. The Bible never teaches that. That's a uh, man-made teaching that's not from God. You die once and you face God. Now, there are two judgments and I want to clarify this just quickly. There is the great white throne judgment that we're looking at here. This is for unbelievers. You will not be a part of that if you are a believer. The great white throne judgment will be a frightening judgment. It will be a judgment based on works. Everyone is already guilty. They're all going to hell. That's the sentence of God. But the Bible does teach there are various degrees of punishment even in hell, just as there will be various degrees of reward in heaven. And so those who, who uh, you know, did evil and knew more than others and continue to persist in evil, they, the Bible says they will be beaten with many blows. But those who in their ignorance yet still rejected Christ will be beaten with few blows. But nonetheless, their destiny is the same. It's hell. But the believer, we're told that we will be judged at the Bema Seat of Christ. The Bema Seat of Christ is a place of reward, not judgment. You will never be judged for your sin. Can you say amen to that? You will never be judged for your sin if you trust in Christ. You will never have to go before God. That teaching about going and seeing the video screen that preachers sometimes use to make congregations do what they want, (laughs) it's a lie. The Bible doesn't teach any such thing. You have been forgiven for your past sins and your present sins and your future sins if you trust in Christ. And you will never have to face the humiliation of being judged or exposed for your sin. Because you are dressed and clothed in the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. And you have been accepted by God as His son and His daughter. But the Bible does say that we will be judged as believers. But not for our sin, but for what we've done for Him in terms of our works. I wish I had more time to talk about this, but I want to just mention one verse in 2 Corinthians 5:10 through 11. It says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You see, you're saved. You are a believer in Christ. You are delivered. You have life. Now, I was scratching my head thinking about this because I was thinking to myself, okay, what's the motivation to serve God? Have you ever thought about that? What, what is the genuine motivation to serve God? If everything is taken care of, we're going to be in heaven and there's certainly going to be an, an equal access to God and an enjoyment of the kingdom of God. If that's the case, then what, what's the motivation for serving God? How, how can I get you to get busy? In other words, you know, as a pastor, you know, how, you, know you ever hear pastors, it's like they've got to find some way to motivate the congregation to get busy. And oftentimes it's in the flesh. They make people feel guilty. 
And they try to drum up, you know, people doing this and doing that. Oh, Jesus died for you. Isn't it the least you could do for Him? Well, there's some truth to that, but I think often that's a, a misuse of Scripture. You know what the motivation is? I'll tell you, it's so simple and so straightforward. It's the love of Jesus. Amen. That's the motivation. It's not to get rewards. I don't love my wife and she doesn't love me so she can get things from me or I can get things from her. I love her because I love her. She's my wife. But as we love one another, we want to give to each other. So the giving and the the reward of that relationship is just such a rich blessing. I'm like, I get to love my wife and she's supposed to serve me too. I can't believe this. This is too cool. This is too wonderful. It's like bonus day. And that's the way it is with the Lord. We shouldn't be serving God because, oh, I hope He's watching this because, I, man, I'm, I'm killing myself here and I hope, I hope He gets these rewards. No. It's like we love Jesus because He loves us. He wants this relationship with us and out of a response to His grace, we're going, I want to serve you. I want to please you. I don't see Jesus in the Scriptures going, man, God, this is rough. I'm just so, I hope that throne is as big as you've been telling me about. No. He says, I... Serve God because I want to do what's pleasing and honoring to Him. That was Jesus' heart. Now, is Jesus going to be rewarded? Oh, you bet. Big time. Big time. If you love Jesus and serve Him, will you be rewarded? Oh, yes. But the choice is yours. Some will actually come into the kingdom of God fairly empty-handed. They'll be saved. But they won't have the joy of those who have given themselves fully to Jesus in service. So yeah, the, the answer to my question is, yeah, we can sit and do nothing until He comes. That's a choice that we have. But God's purpose is that we would be giving ourselves in a love relationship to Him and pouring ourselves out and giving ourselves away and investing ourselves in things that last and making our life count by the grace of God and helping others come into this fabulous, life-changing eternal relationship with Jesus Christ and God wants to use you to do it. He will fill you and make it possible. But it's up to you. He gives you the choice. Now, oh, I wish I had more time. There are two sets of books. The book of life is where your name is recorded if you're a believer. That's all you need to know. That's all there is. If your name is written there, you're saved. If your name is not written there because you've rejected the opportunity and the redemption of Christ, then the Bible says that you will be judged on your works. You'll either be judged for whether you receive Christ or if you choose not to go to door number one, you can go to door number two and you can be judged by your works. But the Bible already tells us that no man will be justified by works. Our works is, are, as are, as they are as filthy rags in his sight. And so mankind will be judged on the basis of their choice. And if they choose to be judged by their works, then God will give them that opportunity, but they will come up short. And the end result of the judgment of their deeds will be eternal separation from God. No works are good enough. Good works will never undo our sin. They will never pay the penalty for sin. They will never outweigh sin. And the destiny of those who refuse to be a part of God's plan, who reject His 
love relationship, his invitation to eternal life will pay the price. And God forbid that anyone should miss the glory of being with Christ and knowing him in this life as well. God has made that possible for us. We have everything to look forward to and absolutely nothing to fear. But my encouragement to you in closing is that I want to be a kind of man that I expend myself completely for the kingdom of God. Not to get something from God. Yes, He will reward faithful service. But because I love Him. I want you to join me. And I want to join you as we link arms together and love Jesus with all of our heart and love one another with everything that He puts in us for His glory and His praise and His honor. Father, we thank You for this time this morning and I thank You for these gracious people who are willing to, uh, to listen to me, listen to Your Word this long. I pray that You would honor Your Word, God. And Lord, we know that Your Word is true. We know that it's reliable. We know that we can trust it. And we know that these things will come to pass. And Lord, I pray that even as your scripture says that every work will be tested by fire and even as the word of God says that therefore what kind of men and women should we be? What should we be living for if these things are the case? And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring this home to all of us and that we would desire to serve you more than ever before for your glory and your praise and your honor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.